Today we have the joy of having a guest preacher with us this morning. Um, Ed Heinze is here from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, that's in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I could tell you that Ed is the Vice President of Institutional Advancement. Is that what it is? Okay. Uh, I could tell you about all of his academic uh, accomplishments. I could tell you um, about his pastorate and ministry successes. I could tell you about his encouragement in my life over the past several months and budding friendship that I'm very thankful for. Um, But what matters most in this moment during this hour is that I trust this dear brother with the truth. And so, Ed, I would have you come this morning and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You got it? it. How about that? Can you hear me now? Very good. Glad we got that out of the way. Because I have some important things to say. And you have some important things to hear. Well, I I do thank you for the the warm welcome, Jay. Uh, Let me tell you a secret. Jay and I do have this friendship. But you need to know that today is the first time we've ever set eyes on one another. And the Lord can do a lot of things with cell phones and emails. And we have interacted with each other for more than probably two years, off and on. And uh, it was a delight to talk to him on the phone yesterday. And now it's a delight to be with him today with eyes set on each other in a, a fellowship of handshakes and hugs as we finally met. Thank you for having me. I uh, would ask you to turn this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. That will be our text for this morning's service. It's found in your Old Testament. If you opened your Bible to the middle, you'd be in the Psalms. And if you turn back toward the front, you would pass Job and Esther, and then you would find yourself in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we will be. As you turn there this morning, I want to introduce you to a people that I am very, very fond of. I want to take you to East Africa to the country of Uganda. In the northern areas of that country, there is a district in a city called Yumbi. And Yumbi is a a hotbed of Christianity in a small collection of people, and it's a place of great persecution and uh, a, a place where Christians have to endure in ways that you cannot even imagine. Yumbi district is comprised of probably 90, I think it's 92% of that population is Muslim. It is dominated by Islam, including the governments. The the regional and city governments are predominantly, uh, the offices are held by Muslims, and they are extremely hostile to the gospel. The other 8% of the Yumbi district is made up of Uh, a strange mix of Roman Catholicism, Pentecostalism, evangelical Christianity, and weaving throughout all of it is an ancient uh, form of witchcraft. I kid you not. Uh, 
The evangelical Christian population of the Yumbi district is less than 1%. It's a, a very small fraction of the community. Within Yumi District, I want to now introduce you to a church. There's this wonderful church of about 350 people called St. Paul's Pilgrim Church. It's a church in the Anglican Union, uh, which is a very, very staunchly, biblically conservative Episcopalian branch. I dare say that you and I, if the Lord dropped us into Yumbi, Uganda, we would be quite comfortable joining this church and worshiping in this church. There's a few doctrinal differences perhaps on secondary or tertiary issues down the, down the road, but we would generally flock into this church and gladly worship there out of probably desperation for the Bible to be proclaimed and the Christ that we call Lord to be worshiped. There's a man in this church that I want to introduce you to. His name is Undunga Charles. And Charles leads a team that is frantically working and endeavoring to translate the scriptures into the native tongue of many people that live in this district of Uganda. Aringa is the name of the language. Now, Uganda was a former British colony, so for guys like me, it's a really good place to go on mission. I've been over there three times. I've probably spent two months of my life in this region and you can do quite a bit of gospel work there because these people generally get English and use English. And so, praise God, we can go and drop in on day one and be effective. But there are many in this region that do not know the English language and they speak this tongue called Aringa. Well, Charles and his team frantically for 13 years worked to translate the New Testament into Aringa. And by the way, the Aringan population is about 100,000 people. So that's a small people group. But I'm here to tell you this morning, to the praise of God, in 2014, they received for the first time in the history of their people a complete copy of the New Testament. Now, now think about that for a minute. 2014, we've got the World Wide Web, we've got airplanes, we Zoom today, we, we've got all of these opportunities to communicate and mass produce. The, the Gutenberg Press was established back in the 1500s, but it's 2014 before our sovereign God, in his wisdom, delivered his sacred scriptures to the Aringa-speaking people. Ndunga Charles and his team are right this minute, I zoomed with him about two months ago, working on Old Testament books. They finished Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Joshua, uh, and right now they've, they're, they're tackling Leviticus. Can you imagine translating Leviticus from English to whatever language and trying to make sense of that? Um, wow, what a task. They've completed Esther. Uh, I believe Job is done now. And uh, there are a couple other Old Testament books that they've finished. But they are projecting that it will be another 10 to 12 years to get the full Old Testament delivered to them in Aringa. It's an astonishing work. Well, I also want to introduce you to the context in which they're doing this. Because it is a dangerous landscape that they live in, spiritually speaking. 
they have attacks on every front. Physical, yes. Spiritual, absolutely. Emotionally, certainly. All the senses are used to attack these people as they work to translate the scriptures. They are severely threatened by the Islamic community, whether it be citizens of the community or government leaders. And at every turn, that church, St. Paul's Pilgrim Church, as well as this translation team, have barriers thrown up, threats thrown at them, and time and time again, they are having to persevere as they advance the kingdom of God in ways that you and I cannot even imagine. Let me give you a flavor. They endure persistent legal and physical challenges such as church properties are confiscated for the construction of Islamic mosques. They literally take their properties, bulldoze them, and erect mosques. Church property is targeted for destruction, for mysterious new roadways that need to run right through their worship center, literally. This place has been around for thousands of years, and all of a sudden they need a road right through the worship center of St. Paul's Pilgrim Church. Christian schools are declared illegal based on some tricky little nuance in the laws of the local communities, and so they're confiscated from these churches, and guess what's put in those buildings? Islamic schools. And then daily, these Christians are physically threatened by family that is Muslim, as well as the government and general citizenry of the regions that they live in. These people live weekly, if not daily, under some kind of duress. And it's all because of who they call God. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning that the people of Yumbi, Uganda, need Nehemiah chapter 4. In fact, they need all of Ezra and Nehemiah, but in particular, they need Nehemiah chapter 4 in what we get in this text that God has inspired Nehemiah to record and pass on to us. Nehemiah chapter 4 is one of the most urgent and intense moments in human history. And let me just take a quick aside for a moment. This is real human history that we're going to look at here this morning. This is not fable, myth. This is not parable. God is so kind in his word. When it's a parable, God tells us it's a parable. And when he's silent and he gives us microscopic details in the text, we need to rightly receive this as an actual account of human history under the sovereign rule and reign of God who created us. And so as we look at this this morning, I'm going to ask you, I need you to lean in, and I need you to look at this text with me, and I think you need to see the historical account of what's happened with the people of God some 2,500 years ago, and we don't want to look at that just to learn about history. We want to do that this morning so that we can learn from history. And there's a difference between learning about history and learning from history. And God has given this text to us so that we can learn from it and so that we can live rightly in 2021 as we are inspired by his word to do. So we have here an historical account in Nehemiah chapter 4 that has often been repeated. In fact, the historical account, the theme of what's going on in this text was going on long before Nehemiah. 
And it's gone on long after Nehemiah. And I want you to know this morning that this theme has also ultimately been fulfilled. And that's something that I'll reserve for the end of the sermon. We'll look at the fulfillment of Nehemiah chapter 4 in its most ultimate form at the end of this message. So here's the theme. There is an ancient foe in Nehemiah chapter 4. There's an incredible underdog in Nehemiah chapter 4. And then there's a strong leader that God chose and rose up in Nehemiah chapter 4. And overarching all of those realities is this. Over it all, in it all, and through it all, there is a mighty and sovereign and good God. Amen. And this mighty, sovereign, good God delivers his people through persecution. So, Here's the main point of this morning's message. When God's people do God's work, extreme opposition will rise up. That's point number one of this overarching thing. When God's people do God's work, extreme opposition will rise up. But the second point of this morning's message is our God will fight for us. And you can count on it. And he does it for his glory and therefore our good. So I want to cut this message this morning into two parts. The first one is when God's people do God's work, there is heavy opposition to be had. Count on it. It is certain. Here we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. Cyrus the Great is the king of Samaria. The Israelites have been in captivity for some 70 years in, in Babylon. After they were disobedient to God, the Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come in and, and pillage Jerusalem and take off all the, the Israelites back to Babylon in, in captivity. Well, now we're in the year 5, I don't know, 540 B.C., 500 B.C., 2,500 years ago, and there's this man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah makes inquiry of the people over in Jerusalem who have gone back to the city of God to reestablish it. He's still in Samaria. He's still with Cyrus the Great. And he hears a report that greatly troubles him. And in hearing that report, he goes to, God, to, to Cyrus the king and says, can I have permission to go back to Jerusalem and help my people rebuild the city? namely the walls around the city. And in a great story, if you look in the first chapter of Nehemiah, the sovereign God directs Cyrus the Great's heart to say yes to this request. And so Nehemiah travels. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, if you'll join me there, let's read the first six verses and let's see what starts to unfold in this historical account. Now when Sanballat, heard that we were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? 
Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 4 now. Nehemiah says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. It's an intense scene. People of God are doing the work of God. God has commanded them to rebuild the walls around the city. There's another command to rebuild the temple in the Ezra-Nehemiah saga. But here these folks are called by God to rebuild the wall. And opposition arises just like that from day one. Not from Cyrus, but from Sanballat and Tobiah. These are governors. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah is the governor of Ammon. And together, they are angry, and the text is explicit here, they are greatly enraged. So the Lord has inspired some detail here. This is, this is not just they're put off, they're mocking these people. They are greatly enraged enraged that these Jews would have the audacity to rebuild the walls around the city of God. So we've got hostile opposition that has arisen. Why are they mad? Why would they care about a wall around a city? Well, this is the city of God. This isn't any old city. And the temple of God is within this city. And the law of God is proclaimed in that temple of God. And so this is a unique place on earth. And these opponents to the Israelites are really opponents to God who has called these people to refortify his city. And in so doing, God's people would be safe. And in so doing, God would himself be glorified. And they want none of that. They want none of that. So, Tobias and Sanballat begin a Cold War campaign on these Israelites. It's a Cold War. It's talk. It's threat. And they jeer at these Jews out of anger. Well, what does uh, Nehemiah, the leader of these people, do in response to this? pack up his tent and head back to Cyrus? Uh, Apologize and ask for forgiveness for doing such an audacious task? Well, the text is very clear. We see in verse 4 that Nehemiah's immediate response is to pray. He doesn't do anything but pray. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. God, I need you to know about this. We're despised. Would you hear this? And then the following verses, he asks God in what we call an imprecatory prayer, he asks God to deal with these opponents. 
So Nehemiah does not return the taunts of the enemy, which aren't we prone to do. No, he turns to God and asks God to respond to this threat from the enemy. In fact, there's no response whatsoever. It's almost as if Nehemiah heard this, but he doesn't even acknowledge them to be there. Because his immediate response is to go to God. And so I just want you to take a moment and look at that. And learn from that. This is a historical account. We need to know about this history. But more than that, we need to learn from this history. Nehemiah rightly sees this moment with this hostility from these opponents to be a problem for God and not for Nehemiah. Because it's God's city. It's God's temple. It's God's law that will be read and proclaimed there. And it's God's city wall. And so Nehemiah says, Lord, this is your problem. Would you hear this and would you deal with this? And he understands rightly that the enemy of God is his enemy. His enemy hates God, and therefore Nehemiah appeals to God to deal with God's enemy. Here's the lesson that we learn from Nehemiah in this. And we understand this as Christians in 2021. When we face opposition for our faith and belief in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need to understand that that opposition is really between them and the triune God. And we, we're not the problem for these opponents. God is the problem. We are caught in the crossfire of this battle between the darkness of this world and the people of this world and the enemies of God and God himself. And so we would be wise to follow in Nehemiah's footsteps and turn to God, whom these opponents have a problem with, and ask God to deal with them as he sees fit. Because we cannot conquer them in our flesh. To do so would rob glory from God. So, Nehemiah here teaches us that the enemies of God need to be dealt with by God himself. And I want you to also notice that Nehemiah's got this this reflex, this spiritual reflex. It's almost an involuntary reflex because he's so disciplined in his worship of God. The minute the heat gets hot from these opponents, he immediately prays to God. And this is a discipline that we see throughout the narrative of Nehemiah. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1, just two pages back, and look at verse 3. Nehemiah has inquired of the conditions of the people in Jerusalem, and the people that he he asks this of report to him in verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile, And they are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. There's the beginnings of his reflexive prayer. When trouble arises, when he hears a bad report from Jerusalem, he immediately shucks off everything. And for days he fasts and he prays as he weeps and mourns over the condition of God's people. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. He goes to Cyrus, as I've already told you, and he asks the the king if he can go back to Jerusalem to help restore the, the walls. And in verse 
4 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king, look at this. I prayed first, and then I spoke second. It's a reflex. It's a discipline that we would do well to learn by. When we face hostilities, we need to pray to the God that those hostilities are directed at. And then we need to act in response to this. And so he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, by the way, this is a historical account. Look at the details we're getting. We even know that the queen is sitting next to the king. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. We've got a sovereign God who's got the heart of King Cyrus in his hand and he's directing it as he will. And Cyrus is no friend of God, but here he is allowing Nehemiah to head back to help the Jews rebuild the city of God. And so we see here again and again that Nehemiah throughout the narrative of this this book is a man of prayer first and not second or third or fourth. Well, what do the people do? We know what Nehemiah did. He's the leader of these people, boots on the ground. But what about the people that are building the wall? What is their response to these taunts from this hostile opponent? Well, we see in verse 6 that Nehemiah says, so we built the wall. I love that sentence. (laughs) I love this. In the face of opposition, we prayed to God and then we did what God told us to do. We built the wall. And look at what they did. They built wisely. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for, and I love this phrase, the people had a mind to work. Undaunted. We've prayed to our God. We're building the wall around the city of God. We've got a mind to work. And we're going to do so. So, they were undeterred by this persecution to this point. They wisely built the wall, and look what it says. We get some details here. They built it to half its height. There's wisdom in that. Let's get a basic level of security around the city of God. Let's don't build it up in in sections to height. No, let's do the whole wall all the way around to half its height. This site, uh, many sites along this wall have been excavated in modern times. They found this wall to be eight feet thick. Okay, so this is a pretty big wall. This isn't a, a fence. This is a wall. And they resist uh, the taunts of the enemy. And they are not discouraged. It's in God's hand. And Nehemiah has led them to trust God. We're still in Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll get back to 4 in a minute. In chapter 2, look at verse 18. Nehemiah 2, 18. And I told them, this is Nehemiah speaking, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
They see God's sovereign hand ruling and reigning over all of these enemies that are taunting them. And they've got a mind to work. Because Nehemiah has led them there to show them the evidence of this strong right hand of God. There's something that jumps out in the text of the book of Nehemiah that I do want to bring your attention to. We will not go through it, but in chapter 3, he gives us a blow-by-blow statement of all the clans of the Israelites that are building on this wall. And they're erecting this wall around the entire circumference of the city of God. And if you count through Nehemiah chapter 3, you're going to find 42 clans or people groups, families, that are spread around the circumference of this city, building equally this wall to half its height. And there are some clans, the details we get, some are very small in number. There's not enough people there, and a lot of them are kids. They can't build the wall, so what did they do? They spread clans out, and they had neighboring clans share reconstructing the wall in that vicinity. So we don't have clans selfishly building the wall right where they lived. And we've got a united front of the people of God who had a mind together to build for the glory of God and for the good of the people. So I want to make a quick application here. We on purpose this morning read Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas and Derby and Lystra and Paul is stoned, taken outside of the city and stoned. Why? Because he's been advancing the kingdom of God, namely in the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the opponents to this hated the message. And so they took the messenger outside, stoned him, and left him for dead. And Paul's traveling entourage thinks he's done. But we're told in the text that Paul peeled himself up off the ground. Those are my words, but that's basically what happened. He peeled himself up off the ground to the dismay of his, of his partners. And he says this phrase, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Many and must. Circle those words in your Bible. Underline tribulations, but circle through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. We see this throughout the history of God's people from Genesis 3 through Nehemiah 4 all the way to even our present day. It is a hard life. You ask my friends in Yumbi, Uganda, through many tribulations, they must enter the kingdom of God. This is the truth of the life that we've been called to live. Because through this, the end is God is most glorified as we endure tribulations on behalf of Him. And so when we are persecuted for serving God, we must understand that it is Him that they are against. And therefore, we must pray to Him to defend His name, to defend His plan, and to defend His people. And in so doing, when resistance is encountered, we must be disciplined and resolved to have a mind to work. What does that work look like? Well, that work looks like Sunday morning's gathering while a guy stands at a piece of furniture with a book open on it and sets it down and says, Thus saith the Lord. This is work here. 
It's glorious work. It's called worship. And we are called by God to do the work of worshiping Him and acknowledging Him as our Creator and our Redeemer. What does the work of God look like? It looks like evangelism. There's people all over this community that are lost. There are people all over Uganda and all other kinds of places around the world that do not know Jesus Christ. And so the work that Charles and his team did to translate the New Testament into Oringa was worship. And it was work worthy of the Lord. Discipleship. I sat in Braxton's class this morning over there. We're learning hermeneutics and learning how to open this Bible and understand it rightly as God intended it to be understood. And so these discipleship classes that you have, that is working unto the Lord to build robust faith because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. If we're going to endure those tribulations, we need to be full of this. We need biblical iron in our blood. So that's the work that we're called to be about as we try and strive to enter the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at uh, the text again. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 4 because we're not done with opposition. It's going to grow, tragically. Starting in verse 7, we see that the external opposition only intensifies. Nehemiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And look at Nehemiah in chapter 9, uh, verse 9. And when we prayed to our God, <laughs> first thing he did was pray. And when we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So enemies become allies in their common cause against God. And this is no small thing here. God's enemies hate to see progress and success amongst God's people. And so we have five rival nations, right? We've got Sanballat, we've got Tobiah, we've got Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites. All of these ites are at war with one another at various times. Well, in this particular moment, they come together and they signed a treaty to conspire against the people of God. Very, very common in the world that we live in. And so they are from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They sign these treaties together to fight against Jerusalem. And now the action gets really hot. And you might start thinking about cutting and running. But let's look at the response of the people of God. As I said in verse 9 there, the first response, we prayed to our God. This is their offense, folks. Their offensive move in response to this threat is to pray to the ultimate, the almighty sovereign God who these enemies hate. And they ask God to take action and to frustrate the plans of his enemies. They don't take matters up into their own hands. Yet, let's be very careful here. 
Because they do do a second thing. They set a guard night and day. This is a defensive move. And so we need to understand from this that prayer is not abdicating human responsibility. We don't just pray and then sit over here and hope for the best. No, we engage the sovereign God and then we come to his word and say, what shall we do in partnership with God to overcome this enemy? And so there is this this dual perspective that we must be taking. We have to take action in this world, but it can't be before we pray and ask God to intervene with us. And so they still engaged in wise works and they still put forth really, really strong effort. And all of that was in obedience to God's calling to them to build this wall. But they don't do it without praying and asking God to act. So I want to take you to the New Testament for a moment. You don't need to turn there, but if you're curious, you could go to Philippians chapter 2. We have a New Testament principle that lines up exactly with this Old Testament reality. And isn't it good of God that he didn't change on us? We heard this earlier. He didn't change on us. Braxton said this in Sunday school. He wasn't this God of wrath in the Old Testament, God of love in the New Testament. No, he's the same God throughout all of history. And what God inspired Paul to write to the Philippians is really and truly what Nehemiah and the Israelites did in the Old Testament. And it goes like this. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 12, about midway through that verse, Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who's working in that right there? You, me. You work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute. But then there's a comma. And verse 13 says, for or because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's flipped. This sentence is, you work it out, but it then tells you why you work it out. It's because God's at work. If God isn't at work, you're going to fail in you working it out. (laughs) All right? And so we need to understand that we have a God who is at work, and it is our calling as his people to join him in that work. And if he's not doing it, we don't need to be about it. And so the people of Israel work out their own salvation by building this wall around the city of God and the temple of God and ultimately the law of God. They're doing that in fear and trembling, but they're doing it because they know God sovereignly is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We need to learn from Nehemiah 4. And we can do so as Braxton, I'm going to quit talking about Braxton in a minute, You can do so by understanding the New Testament text that tells us what the Old Testament people were doing. What a mighty God we have to inspire such a perfect and succinct and precise and accurate and reliable word that doesn't change based on the covenant era that we live in or whatever. Oh, so they are deeply faithful to God and very practical in their life on earth, right? 
They prayed to God and then they set up a guard. That's faithful and practical. And we need to be faithful and practical people. And so their faith, as we see in this text, had bearing on their life. And they brought God's perspective down to their circumstances and to their conditions on earth. And they still had a mind to work. But it gets worse. Let's look at the next set of passages, verses. Starting in verse 10, tragically we're introduced to internal opposition. Ah, internal opposition. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, now in Judah is Jerusalem and these people that are building the wall. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's true, by the way. Verse 11, and our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, oh no, the Jews that lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, quote, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What a scene. I mean, this is Nehemiah chapter 4. This is intense, isn't it? There's not many more intense passages throughout all of the Bible. You can go to Egypt and see some, right? Back in Exodus. This is one of the all-timers. There is discouragement amongst the people who are building. Some are discouraged by fatigue. They say the burdens are heavy. Some are discouraged by the size of the task. They looked up and saw rubble everywhere. How are we ever going to get this done? And then they started listening to the taunts of the enemy. They've listened to this and they're repeating the propaganda campaigns of Sanballat and Tobiah. And then, as if that wasn't enough, there are Jews that live nearby, not involved in the rebuilding, who are discouraging these people who are obeying God. The people of God are discouraging the people of God who are obeying God. Wow. They came from everywhere, the text says. Specifically, they came from all directions. What a discouraging reality. And they repeated their message how many times? Ten times. Hey, you must return to us. Enough already. Hey, we get your point. You've you've made a good point. God's good. But quit that stuff. You're going to get killed. You need to come back to us and it'll be all right. We've got bread. We've got wine. We can sleep a little. Come on back. Maybe they might have even been saying, if you get that done, we're going to get in trouble too. Come on, man, just settle down and come back and join us. It'll be all right. Let's worship God in our own privacy and let's not extol his name to the nations. 
Meanwhile, the external threat is intensifying. The enemy said they will not know or see till we come in among them and kill them and stop their work. Wow. Subversive. Nehemiah's response, he didn't order a preemptive strike. Okay, everybody put all your work down. We've got these war weapons about us, spears and everything else. Let's go get after them. Nope. Their offense was prayer. And so instead, we can presume that he was faithfully still praying, and then he strategically placed people according to their clans all around the wall. Maximum unity, maximum security. And then Nehemiah addresses the people with one of the greatest speeches of motivation from a leader in all of human history. When he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Fight after you remember the Lord. So there's a principle here that we see, and I want you to get this. In fact, this one's one that I would have you to write down if you're a note taker. Throughout Scripture, we see this theme to be true, and I'm going to put it in a real succinct phrase. The fear of man leads us away from the Lord. The fear of man leads us away from the Lord. But the fear of God leads us toward God. Isn't that something? We're to fear the Lord. And you think, well, if I'm fearing something, I'm going to run from it. No, the fear of the Lord is a fear that causes us to run towards Him. And yet, if we take our eyes off of Him and we fear man, we're going to abandon the Lord. There's no way you can fear man and run to the Lord. You need to fear God and make certain that you are right with God in obeying Him and His commands for you. And we see this. I'll just give you a verse. Listen to this verse to substantiate what I just gave you. Psalm 118, verses 6 through 9. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? (laughs) The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You see it? Fear of man causes us to run from the Lord. The fear of the Lord causes us to run to the Lord. That's where we need to find ourselves, brothers and sisters in every circumstance that we are faced with. And so Nehemiah, in all of this instruction, in all of these accounts of showing the faithfulness of God, has them spiritually and physically prepared, and they ultimately do come back around and they respond. And let me make a quick point of application here. This is very important for a church to hear. One of the adversaries, common tactics, and by the adversary I mean Satan, the devil, He's real. One of his most common tactics against the church is to cause internal confusion and disunity. Man, he loves to do this. This often happens during the most critical times of building a church. And by building, I mean worshiping and fulfilling the great commission of God. 
The condition usually develops from the influence of naysayers or dare I even say false teachers. And boy, are we encouraged and warned throughout the Old Testament and the New about false teachers. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. Paul is leaving the elders of Ephesus. And here's his parting words. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Where did they come from? From amongst them own, their own selves. What do the enemies of Israel say in Nehemiah 4? Hey, we're going to sneak in amongst them and they're not going to know we're there until we kill them. So important is this that Paul gave Titus instructions for selecting elders. Titus chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Let's listen to this. An elder must hold firm, a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Wow. So we've got Jews from all around saying ten times, hey, come back to us. That's false teaching. They are telling these Jews that are building the wall to disobey God's word and not follow it. Quit building, come back. We've got enemies that will slither in amongst the Israelites and pop up and destroy them, unbeknownst to them. This has been going on for a long, long, long time. And it's even going on in 2021 in churches all over the world. So we need to be careful and we need to learn from this that we've got to be unified as a congregation and together we need to remember the Lord and fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, that was point number one. Quicker now, point number two. How are we doing? We're good. Point number two, right? Let me, let me give you one again. When the people of God do the work of God, fierce opposition will arise. Point number two, but our God will fight for us. This is such a hopeful text here. Watch this. Look just at verse 15 by itself. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Victory is in the Lord. God frustrated their plan. True protection comes only from God, not from ourselves, not from our flesh, not from the schemes of man, but only from the Lord. Way back in Deuteronomy 20, just verse 4, God says, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Who's doing the fighting? God. And then listen to this. And also to give you the victory. Now, it's God's victory. But as God's people, it's our victory too. And if we're victorious because God's victorious, God is glorified in all the world. 
And so we see here this truth that God will fight for us. God commanded the work. God equipped them for the work. God gave them the leader that they need. God used their obedience, their discipline, their vigilance, their arming of the people. He used all of these things to frustrate these five rivals that had treated together to come against God and his people. And Nehemiah assures them of the ultimate source of their victory, even after he armed them up with swords and stationed them at strategic places around the building. Listen to what Solomon said. Solomon long before built the original temple in the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 127 verse 1. You've heard this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in... Let me hear you. Good. Have you heard the second sentence? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in what? Vain. We've got a sovereign God that has chosen us to be His people. And we should remember Him in thick and thin through trials and tribulations. We should remember Him and then engage in the work that He's given to us. Unabated. We might limp a little bit while we do it. But our God will bring the victory home provided that we're really doing God's work. And we got to make sure that we're not doing our work. we got to be doing God's work. And if we are, victory is certain. Because if we are doing God's work rightly and we lose, God's dishonored, isn't he? So he will see us through our faithful and obedient work that he's given us to do. All right, last but not least, and I'm going to let most of the scripture do the talking here. Look at verse 16. We're going to see the results of this defense now of remembering the Lord and engaging in the work. So starting in verse 16, all the way through the end of the chapter. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Wow. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Just picture this, right? This is history. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You hear it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Both the willing to work for his good pleasure. You build You're armed when you hear the trumpet sound. You join us right there. Why? Because God will fight for us there. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
Picking up in verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a, there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of, God, of the guard who were following me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And there you have it. The people of God doing the work of God in the face of extreme opposition, but God fought for them. A couple of points of application as I close. And by the way, would you please turn over one page to Nehemiah 6, verse 15. <laughs> you got to read this. It'd be an incomplete sermon without reading this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. You be careful. This is history. 52 days means 52 days. And God miraculously used 42 clans of Israelites to rebuild this wall in 52 days. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God is glorified because the people were victorious in the strength and the power of God born out of their obedience to God's command. It's beautiful. And this is true back then. It was true before then with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. This is true in all of David's battles with all kinds of fierce enemies. And this is true all the way forward into 2021. And it's even true at LifeGate, LifePoint Baptist Church. I've got a LifeGate church in my past. Forgive me. LifePoint Baptist Church. We are to learn from this, not about this, learn from this, how we should live our daily lives, even in San Angelo, Texas. We are daily attacked on every front. You go to work, you go to school, you do business in the city, you have family life, you serve this church, and you, for if you do that for very long, you will find, lo and behold, there are enemies that oppose what you are about. They're opposed to worshiping and subjecting yourselves to the authority of this. And they're going to mock and jeer at you. Because this says a lot of things contrary to what outsiders are doing and thinking and saying. Right? I mean, we've got all kinds of fronts. We've got battles over gender. We've got battles over marriage. We've got battles over abuse. We've got all kinds of distortions about how people are to relate to one another that are not biblical. And we've got this really offensive thing called the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be right with God. And the world out there hates that message. And they are greatly enraged at that message. And they might jeer at us. And they might even come after us more extremely. 
It's happening in Yumbi. It could happen in San Angelo. So as we worship, as we evangelize, as we try to disciple one another in these scriptures, we need to expect heavy opposition. And all the while we keep this in our right hand, this is our work, and we believe this and we obey this. And every now and then we might have to get very, very practical. I just learned yesterday we might even have to call an attorney and arm ourselves. But we remembered the Lord first, right? And then we defended ourselves with attorneys or whatever else so that we can continue to do the work of the Lord. And in so doing, may we pray that the enemy's plans are frustrated and that they fall in their own self-esteem and they realize that our God fought for us. Yeah, that's a real pertinent application to Life Point Baptist Church and every other sister church that you can think of in America. We're all in this together and we all have these issues bearing down on us at any given moment. But I said I had two more applications. Let me give you the last one. There is a greater application to Nehemiah 4 than even what's going on in Yumbi or Life Point Baptist Church, right? There's a greater application to all of this. Nehemiah 4 is a text that foreshadows something greater. Let me say it better. Nehemiah 4 is something that foreshadows someone better. I want you to be careful here this morning. I don't think you're here, but the Nehemiah at Life Point Baptist Church, his name is not Jay <laughs> or Braxton, right? You guys aren't Nehemiah in this. Who is Nehemiah foreshadowing? Jesus Christ. And I get this because I go to Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus. There's these two disciples that are distraught. They're kicking the ground. They're weeping because they've lost their Jesus. He died. And we didn't think this was possible. And Jesus appears and is walking with them. Hey guys, what's up? Ah, you hadn't heard? Where have you been? I mean, this is a bad time right now. We lost our Savior. Oh. And the text goes on and it says that Jesus, Luke writes, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And brothers and sisters, I think that includes Nehemiah chapter 4. In Nehemiah, it foreshadows Jesus Christ. So here we go. We are an extreme underdog as fallen human beings. And man, there is an ancient adversary that is pursuing us. Yeah, it's the devil, but... There's something that's pursuing us that we cannot conquer, and it's called death. Death entered the world because of sin, and we have sinned against the God who made us. We bear His image and likeness, and yet we've used it to worship ourselves in so many ways. We are an underdog against death, and we cannot defeat death on our own. We need a strong one 
raised up by God. We need a Nehemiah. And I'm here to tell you this morning that something greater than Nehemiah is here. And his name is Jesus the Christ. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater. Something greater than Nehemiah is here. He is Jesus Christ. We have a strong leader of God's own choosing. Do you know the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Oh. (laughs) Well, listen to this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath, His name, from age to age, the same. And He must win the battle. And He did. For you see, our God has fought for us in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. He lived a life without sin. We were in Luke this morning at the temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus did not cave to the adversary, the devil, who tempted him. He was perfect, and yet he went to the cross and he died. And when he died on that cross, he died as a substitute for you and for me. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that you and I who knew sin through his substitution, might become the righteousness of God if we would believe in him. Do you believe in him? Can you remember him and therefore get the benefit of him fighting for you? So God has fought for us on that cross with our sinless substitute, Jesus Christ. And God fought for us again three days later. What happened three days later? He rose from the dead, conquering death forever, and he must win the battle. Well, right there, he won the battle. And if you believe in his conquering of the grave, you too will conquer the grave and be victorious. Why? Because he did it. So know this with certainty this morning, brothers and sisters. Let's have a mind to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in us. Let's pray. Father, we needed this this morning and you delivered. We need this daily. You call it daily bread. We've come and we've tasted and we've seen that you are the Lord. Father, I pray as a visitor to this church that you would put a hedge of protection around these people, that they would remember you, and that you would win the victory for them, provided, Lord, that they are faithful and obedient to you and your word. Father, we pray that you'd protect them from the world. We pray that you'd protect them from disunity from within. And this would be found to be a faithful, harmonious, ambitious congregation.
who's all about your good work. You are a mighty fortress, O God of Jacob, and we thank you for calling us your people, and we pray this in the strong name